I'm the Reverend Kat Benakis, and this is the Holy Holy Podcast. In this season, we're talking about economic and workforce issues in Chicago. Today's episode is on incarceration. To give some context, I visited St. Leonard's Ministries, a nonprofit over near the United Center on the west side of Chicago. St. Leonard's is a prisoner reentry program that provides housing and wraparound services for people exiting the criminal justice system. On average, St. Leonard's clients have 21 arrests, nine convictions, three prior incarcerations, and have served somewhere between 10 and 47 years. Half of them were incarcerated for violent crime. The St. Leonard's program works. For those who have completed the program, the recidivism rate is just 16% for men and 5% for women, compared to Illinois' general statistic of 50% for men and 35% for women. But St. Leonard's can support fewer than 10 to 20% of its applicants. In a given year, it services somewhere in the hundreds. There are 45,000 men incarcerated in Illinois. That's like the entire population of Morton Grove. At St. Leonard's, as many as 75% of staff members are themselves ex-offenders and former clients of St. Leonard's, including Chris Roach, the program director. Chris spoke with me about how he became involved in St. Leonard's. We spoke in his office on the first floor of one of several homes that have been converted into program offices. So I oversee the daily function and operations of the program structure for the men's program. We do operate on the residential inpatient treatment structure, but all of our services on the outpatient level, with the exception that they don't have to travel anywhere. Everything is right here on site. So everyone is going through behavioral modification services through Adler Community Health Services, behavioral modification services through healthcare alternative systems and relapse prevention services. They are going through relapse prevention services through an in-house relapse prevention counselor. People are being taught how to acquire an apartment and to maintain an apartment through the housing specialist. They have on-site caseworkers to help do two things. One, to hear what their concerns are and help guide them in a way that they will take the initiative to redirect their behavior. And they are also the person who will help track their progress and navigate them through the program. You know, the, the, the plan for St. Leonard's is for them to leave better than they came. If they leave here with no job, leave here without an apartment, leave here without a better stable relationship with family or significant others, the one thing that they're guaranteed to leave here with is a sense of direction of how they're going to get it. That's the philosophy that I run on. What were you, what did you end up being incarcerated for? robbery. I'm not proud of this, and I'll give you the story behind why I did it. At 13 years old um, was my first act of gun violence. My mother was very, very heavy into her addiction, so as a kid, I used to steal my mother's works and all her drugs and paraphernalia, and I'd take it and dissolve it in water and crush everything up, and I'd bury it in the backyard. So I'd get a whooping every day because she knew it was me, but she couldn't prove it was me. And she'd look at me, say, you been in my room? I'm like, no. 
And she was like, have you been in my room? I was like, no. And she like, get the belt up. She's like, okay, because I'm going to do it again tomorrow, every time I catch it. One of my biggest dreams as a kid was for my mother to stop using. And that was because of the ridicule that I got at school. Keep in mind, they used to call me little dirty Christopher Roach. And that was because we didn't have much. My mother was heavy into her addiction. So we did what we could to be a little more presentable. And it never was much. Um, all the other kids had decent parents who either really cared about what was going on or it made it look like they cared. So I, I'd ask my friends, hey, do me a favor. If my mom come try to buy some stuff, don't sell it to her. They'd say, okay, and then my mom go to try to buy some stuff, and they'd sell it to her. So I got to the point, if you're not going to do what I ask, then I'll make sure that you don't sell it. So I started robbing drug dealers. And from 13 to 15 years old, I'd made a repetition. I was 14 years old. First robbery was 1300 bucks <laughs> from a drug dealer. It went from doing it to keep people from selling to my mom to like, hey, this, I can get rich fast like this. <laughs> so I'd keep the money. I wasn't a drug dealer, never believed in it. I'd keep the money, pass off the drugs to my friends, tell them to sell it. They keep half, give me half. Whatever jewelry I got from the drug dealers, because they wore a lot of jewelry then, I'd give it to one of my friends, tell them you sell it, take half from me. That's how I got my first apartment at 16 years old. Rent was $500 a month. I um, paid four years rent. I'd pay a uh, guy who was in his addiction, pay him 50 bucks a month to sign off on the lease and turn in the rent. <laughs> but eventually it caught up with me. So I went to prison from there, went in at 18, came out at 27. When Roach was released, he immediately went to catch a train. The moment I set foot off the train, looking around, not knowing, not familiar with anything. So when I left, there were three train lines. There was the Congress train, which was the blue line. There was the Lake Street train, which was the green line. And there was the 95th train, which was the red line. When they dropped me off, there were signs that had Red, blue, orange, green, pink, yellow, and light blue. And then the brown line. <laughs> so um, I was confused. First thing I did, lit a cigarette, and I'm smoking on the platform. And a security officer held me up, bent my arm up behind my back, threw me to the ground, um, was talking crazy to me. Now, I'm, I'm not going to be ashamed of this. I, I have had a great deal of involvement in the streets prior to prison. So my first reaction was the moment I get out of this, I'm about to river dance on this guy <laughs> because I, I felt I'd, I'd done nothing to warrant this. And he was, I was like, hey, what's going on, man? Get your hands off me. He was like, are you stupid? And I was like, what's wrong with you? And he was like, why are you smoking on the platform? And I'm like, so what's wrong? You can smoke on the platform. Little to my knowledge, there was a large 
three foot by 10 foot sign on the platform and all white board with black letters that said no smoking. And back in 95, when I got arrested, you could smoke on the platform. You could smoke anywhere in Chicago, including federal buildings. When the clients come out now, what are the things that are surprising to them that didn't exist when they went in? Computers, um, living life clean and sober, not have to worry about if they walk out their door, if the police will be waiting for them, no warrants looming over their heads. Just a great deal of fear about doing something different. You know, most of the people that come here have lived their life in the haze, in the cloud, you know, high, thinking about where they're going to get the next dollar for, um, not being responsible for anything, have no obligations to anything, just existing, being wanderers. So to come to St. Leonard's mean you'll no longer just exist. Now you get to live. When you, when you first saw St. Leonard's, what did you think? <laughs> so it may sound like a dream, but this is the truth. I walked from 80th and Ingleside to St. Leonard's. There was a cloudy haze the whole time while I was walking. When I set foot onto St. Leonard's house, the sun was blazing. There was a cat mini laid out in the court, a big old fluffy cat. She was just laid out in the courtyard. Um, there were squirrels running tree to tree, playing, Minnie trying to figure out which one she can catch. There were people that I had active gang involvement with, um, rivalry with in prison and on the street. They were sitting side by side, playing chess, playing cards, listening to music, laughing and playing. There was no frowns on anyone's faces. I seen people of all walks of life, race, creed, colors, everybody in harmony and everybody peaceful and happy. So my first thought was, <laughs> whatever the hell they got going on here, I want in. And that was my thought. Um, and I said, I don't care. Like, what are you looking for? I said, I don't know. Well, what do you need help with? I said, I don't know. And what are your plans? I said, listen, I don't know what I want to do, but I do know whatever y'all got going on here, I want in on it. I also spoke on some related issues to Carrie Thomas, the executive director of the Chicago Jobs Council. So there are definitely jobs because of the licensing requirements for the industry in the industry or for the jobs in particular that ban people from working because they have a criminal record or increasingly they're getting very they're getting more specific so it's not an overall ban. So, for example, people are like, oh, if you have a criminal record, you can't work in healthcare. Well, healthcare is a pretty big field. Um, so, really, you narrow into the direct care jobs tend to be um, more restrictive. A lot of jobs, like in finance, if you have to handle money, depending on what your record is, that's going to make a difference. But certainly, there are a lot of jobs, like a lot of jobs that include driving a lot of jobs that are sort of maintenance or landscaping, those kind of jobs that have nothing to do with whether you have a criminal record. I think people would be surprised to find out that there are many employers who don't really worry about that. 
a lot of construction jobs, like really it's about the skills you have and your ability to show up and be there on time and being a dependable worker. Certainly if something were to happen on the job, that's different, but that affects all of us. So that's really not an issue of whether you have a record or not. There are now in Illinois, there's a really strong community of advocacy organizations that advocate for um, more employment opportunities for people who have criminal records. And so there are a lot more restrictions now on when employers can at what point they ask you in the process if you have a criminal background or at what point they do a background check. There are also commitments of employers, including public employers, to focus on employment opportunities for people who have criminal records. So they're sort of leading the way as like, this is how to do it. We increasingly see examples of employers who, there actually is a coffee bean company in the Western suburbs that only hires people with criminal records. And the person who founded that company was equally out of his interest in coffee beans. And also because he had a relative who had lost a job because of a criminal record or couldn't find a job. And he just saw the personal experience of how unfair that was, that you'd already like, you know, you did your time and you're not being given the the chance that you should be given. So there are definitely opportunities, but it really is an uphill fight. And the, the other thing is that I think a lot of people assume that there are barriers that they don't have and they don't necessarily have the, they don't know how to talk about it. They don't know how to clean up their record in some way. So if there are expungement opportunities or ways to seal your record, it's old, you know, it's like way, you know, 10 years or more, but they also don't know how to talk about it. Like at what point do I bring it up? If somebody asks me, how do I, you know, how do I talk about myself in that way? And so that's actually something we do with community organizations is help them to help their the clients they're working with talk about their background. So with all of these issues and stories in our minds, I have the benefit of a great panel of religious leaders to help us think through these things. Abdul Malik Ryan. At DePaul, I'm the Assistant Director of the Office of Religious Diversity and Muslim Chaplain. Ike Serrata. I've been the rabbi at Lakeside Congregation in Highland Park, Illinois, for the last 21 years. And David Watkins. I serve as Senior Pastor of Greater Bethesda Missionary Baptist Church here in Chicago, Washington Park community. Roach complicates the idea of what a criminal is in a delightful way. He... Uh, committed robbery as a teenager in hopes of getting his mom to stop using drugs. Uh, We talked a little bit about this in terms of personal responsibility versus communal responsibility and workforce. But how responsible is any given individual for their specific set of actions when we think about criminality? You know, I think it is sometimes a, a difficult question, but I think that people have to be morally responsible for their own actions. That's part of human dignity. You can't take a group of people saying, well, you're not responsible for what you do. So it's not helpful to tell people, but we have to step back and realize sometimes that the way I've seen it expressed that that makes a lot of sense to me and that came to my mind when, when uh, the story was being told was that Sometimes we talk about, as religious people, we believe in giving people second chances, even if they've made mistakes or not. But when you get in and you talk to people and you actually realize the lives that people have led, a lot of times you figure out they were never given a first chance, Mm. that they never had, Mm. that they made a choice. You may think it's a bad choice, but they had nothing but bad choices in front of them. They didn't have good choices in front of them. And so, again, they are responsible for the choice they made, but we as a society are responsible for the fact that they had nothing but bad choices in front of them. 
Well said. You know, Antonio Davis was a young man who came to us, gangbanger, drug dealer, making four or $5,000 a week. We had joined the game at six. At six years old, because he needed protection. And as a six-year-old, he one of the ways he had to join the gang was to deliver a package. And we you can imagine what this package is, right? Is he responsible at six years old? Sure, we all must take responsibility. But who's responsible for creating the conditions in which a six-year-old has to join a gang to get protection in his community, a community that had been disinvested in for decades because of everything else going on in society? So I think we want to hold these two ideas in tension at all times. Uh, because that's the only way we can actually have the great conversation and get to well, some real solutions about both and. Free will is a really complicated question, probably more than uh, <laughs> the discussion we have here. Whether uh, whether there is such a thing as free will even uh, is something that you could call into question. Right? But certainly the example uh, that you give is so powerful. It's how um, – how do we expect someone to make a good choice when they don't have choices in front of right. them? So there is some responsibility. Of course, we, we're human beings. We can change as this young man has changed, mm -hmm. and it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. you know, so we can do that, but, uh, but the odds are stacked against so many people in our society. How do our traditions deal with sufficient punishment? What is punishment that has been paid? To what degree has it been paid in the past? Are we responsible for the sins of our fathers? How do, how do we deal with the, the timeline of crime and punishment when we think about what people live with in the United States who have been incarcerated and continue in some ways to pay for their past crimes after they're released? The Jewish tradition talks about atonement, which is Something like restorative justice, I think, mm -hmm. really. It's how do we make up for the mistakes that we've made. And as a community, we have a time where we have to do that each year where we're supposed to make an honest heshbon hanefesh, it's called, the accounting of the soul, and look and see what are the things that we've done. And not just apologize for them, but actually make some restitution for them. And that's, that's what the judicial system is supposed to give us, right? is the ability for someone to clear their name by doing the atonement that they need to do for whatever poor decision they may have made in their lives. And once they've done it, once atonement has happened, then they're free and clear to go forward. When I, when I received this question and heard this question, the, 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 the thing that continued to pop in my mind was, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says your God. Right. This is in Isaiah 40 that, that there is a time and place where punishment has been exacted, but then there's a time when it is over. And there should be a time when if a person, even in a corrupt judicial system, in an incarceration system, where the odds are stacked against and there's always unfair uh, sentencing for persons of color, that once that sentencing is up and they've done their time, then they should be free, completely free. Right. There is a time where then they should be completely restored back to the community. So in our tradition, we talk about returning citizens. We don't talk about ex-cons. We don't talk about all of that type of stuff. It's a returning citizen. And that returning citizen should have all of the rights and the privileges of citizens because they've paid their price and debt to society. Yeah. I think these questions, they really, to my mind, they bring 
because I'm also very, it's very appealing to me, the ideas of restorative justice. And, and when I look to my tradition in scripture, there is an idea that if someone does something wrong, there is a way you need to restore the relationships, you need to restore the community, they need to recognize the harm that they've done, and that in that context, you should forgive them and you should restore them and you should not hold anything else against them. The challenge we've had is that many times we don't feel that community exists. And what takes the place of it is the state, is the government, but I don't think anyone really feels like it, which is why I a little bit, I, although I totally agree with the pastor's comments about we need to, as broken as our system is, we need to we need to allow people an opportunity to move forward with their lives. But the whole concept of like someone paid their debt to cider or, or or someone you know paid for their crime or something by being held in a cage for a certain number of hmm. years is not really it's not really something that appeals to me as like I don't see the relationship between those two things, and they're all often used to be. Uh, you know, in some of our community organizing that we would do uh, on the southwest side, I would often see two different um, two different stories going on at the same time where people would be calling for, why can't the police take care of our community? Why do we have to deal with all this crime? Why do we have to deal with drug sales on our block? They don't have to deal with that in the nice neighborhood. So we, we should we should forget that crime we should not forget that crime, is a real burden, and crime is a burden that is borne by the poor and the marginalized more so than anyone else. <laughs> and at the same time, some of the people would say at those same community meetings, we need to stop the criminalization of our kids. Yes. We need to – our kids are turned into criminals, and they're, and they're put into incarceration system, and they're – so – it may seem that there's some tension between those two things because on the one hand, you're calling for the police to do something. On the other hand, you're saying you don't want the police to. But really what we need is for a different thing to happen. We need a different way of addressing the actual issues that are going on in communities that make jobs so scarce, that make crime so prevalent, rather than addressing it by simply um, arresting a few people who made the only choices they had and holding them in a cage for a number of years and then bringing them out and pretending that somehow – uh, something will be better about the society or the system or that their family that they left behind will be better off for the fact that they were in that cage. So I think we have to really – I know we have to do what we can in the context of what we have, but we also have to have more radical ideas of re-envisioning what is the problem and what are the solutions when it comes to crime and safety in our communities. We've really abandoned the idea of prison reform and rehabilitation and people go into prison addicted to drugs and they come out addicted mm -hmm. to drugs. It's really uh, not much of substance seems to come out of that. If we're lucky, a fear of going back and that's all. My brother spent two years in prison uh, during Nixon's war on drugs uh, mm. when we were just kids. And so it's really his story to tell, not mine. But uh, my side of it is going to visit him in prison and seeing the hopelessness and, and the hell of where those young men primarily were. And it was uh, tragic. I don't think anybody learned anything. Yeah, I certainly don't want to uh, make it seem as if in any way, shape, form, or fashion, I believe that incarceration is the way to go for communal re restoration. I'm saying that in the times in which we live, this is where we are. And so while we're trying to transform 
the whole thing. I would say we need to do away with the proliferation of prisons, period. I mean, because it has not been a transformative or restorative process at all, especially here in Cook County when many of those who have been incarcerated are suffering from mental illness or some other uh, form of malady, but they're not able to get the treatment that they uh, need. We're not addressing the root cause of why they're there in the first place. And so these just become holding cells. These become, you know, uh, cages in a sense uh, for those who did not have any decisions, do not have the right resources. And so what are we saying as a community and how are we valuing people who are just having a, I mean, they just don't have the resources that they need to be a productive citizen. I'm saying let's broaden the conversation. Yes, let's get these radical ideas. Uh, what I love about this conversation is that we are coming from different traditions, but I really love the fact that there is so much um, continuity between the traditions. And so why, can this be the starting place that we continue to have these type of conversations and broaden them to make a difference in policy and, and practice in this country? I think our faith traditions have a lot in common when it comes to this. I mean, in the Jewish tradition, we pray three times a day. We say, umatir asurimu munatoli afar, which um, blesses God who frees the captive mm. and keeps faith with those who sleep in the dust, which mm. are the those who are impoverished and disenfranchised, right? So we actually uh, pray to a God whom we are supposed to emulate. Yes. Right? And the one who frees the captives mm. and the one who... Uh, keeps faith with those in need. Yes. So if we can live up to those words, we'd be going a long way to what we need to do. Amen. Yeah. And I think partially for the reason the pastor is mentioning, I do feel optimism. Yeah, it may be hard to in some cases. We may be many of us may find it hard because of things that are happening in politics on the national level. But I think that you were seeing more conversation. The conversation's always been in the community, but you were seeing more conversation even on political levels mm -hmm. in, in recent years about the need to to rethink prison system, to to have less people incarcerated, to rethink more creative ways. You're seeing even Sheriff Tom Dart here in Cook County was doing things like mm -hmm. that. And whether it's motivated by sincere concern or motivated by budgetary issues or whatever it is, we it's good that that space is opening up for that discussion. Yes. And then at the same time, um, we're seeing a lot of questions of uh, a lot of people in different places seeing that this has a huge effect on our communities and mobilizing behind looking at who are we electing as our state's attorneys? Who are we electing as the prosecutors and what who are they answering to? During Ramadan this month, the Muslim community, because of all the texts in our tradition about freeing prisoners, freeing captives, and because of the renewed attention to the injustice of the bail system, whereby pretrial people who have not been convicted of anything are often held for long months and months and months in jail when they haven't been convicted of a crime just because they don't have resources to pay bail. And so the Muslim community has started a project called Believers Bailout, which has people giving their zakat money, as we talked about, mm -hmm. during the month of Ramadan to pay the bail of people to release them from prison, as mm -hmm. this is one of the categories uh, that you can use that obligatory payment of justice, of charity towards people in order to free the captives and free the prisoners. So we hopefully will continue to see more creativity like this, more political mobilization, and more coming together across different communities so that we can really make this a reality. Yes, let's. We can make a new sense of justice and first chances a reality. As people of faith, we can move from talk to action with the undergirding of our beliefs. We can do better than 45,000 men in cages. 
and we must do better. For today's episode, I am grateful to Erwin Meyer and Chris Roach at St. Leonard's Ministries. You can learn more about St. Leonard's at their website, slministries.org. Thanks also to Carrie Thomas at the Chicago Jobs Council at cjc.net. Incredible gratitude to Abdul Malik Ryan, Ike Serrata, and David Watkins. Our panel was recorded at the WBEZ studios and the Chicago Public Media here in Chicago. Editing was provided by David Schulman. Until next time, peace be with you.